This is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 16th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm joined once again with Dave, and today we will be talking about just how susceptible we might all be to doing things that we would not ordinarily do. Through the experiments conducted by Stanley Milgram and Philip Zimbardo, to provide a little context, at the end of the Second World War, an international tribunal was established known as the Nuremberg Trials. The Nuremberg Trials were established to try former Nazi high officials, many of whom were accused of crimes against humanity. Although the trial mostly focused on some of the more senior members of the party and not the average rank and file soldier, one of the most common defenses that was used was, I, I was merely following orders. Of the 24 accused Nazis, 19 were found guilty, three were acquitted, one was not tried because of poor health, and one committed suicide. The question of whether someone could be exonerated from heinous crimes because they were simply following orders would remain a question that would linger in the minds of Americans for years to come. Just how susceptible we all are to committing atrocities, both at the highest and lowest levels, Books such as Philip K. Dick's novel, Man in the High Castle, and It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis, explore the possibility of fascism and how it could take root in America, and that even people born free and proud could succumb to the tyranny of evil. Joining me now is Dave to elaborate more just how Stanley Milgram put to test the idea that people who commit heinous acts could simply be following orders. Thank you very much, Aaron. This to me is a huge question, uh, almost to me the question of evil. But two gentlemen, and I heard about in psychology classes 25 years ago when I was a little bit younger man, Stanley Milgram and Philip Zimbardo, trying to answer this question, as you said, why, why would good Germans allow the Holocaust to happen? It's people did not understand it. How could that be? Because a lot of people in America are of German and ancestry. Uh, in fact, my parents had a good friend uh, they called Dolph, who obviously first name was Adolf. Both these gentlemen were born in 1933. And, and looking back on uh, Wikipedia, my favorite source, it's amazing. Philip Zimbardo and Stanley Milgram went to the same high school and the same class in the Bronx. Just one of these small world coincidences. And I thought they were completely separated, but, but let me tell you their stories. We start with Stanley Milgram, a, uh, a man of Jewish ancestry. And at first I thought uh, it, his family had escaped the Holocaust, but no, actually uh, they came over in the World War I era. Uh, so they were already here and he was born in the Bronx. And it's interesting because I work with soldiers with PTSD and we have a thing called survivor's guilt and uh, reading about him, he was so troubled that he was saying to people, you know, I should have been born in you know, Berlin or Frankfurt or Hanover, Dresden, and I, I should have been the one going to Auschwitz. Uh, survival's guilt is even more powerful than a womb sometimes that your soldier next to you gets hit and you know, might even have a leg amputated and you, you're, you haven't been scratched, you haven't been touched, but if it, uh, well, all of us heard inside, well, why was he taken? Why was he hurt? It, it should have been me. So 
Stanley Milgram was troubled by this. So he got into you know, the field. I, I want to ask you, Dave, it's like, what do you, in your experience, what makes some people have survivor's guilt and other people just say, yay, I'm alive and I can move forward? Do you think it's a special type of personality that feels that way or, or a set of experiences? No, um, I'm not sure if it's a personality, but I think it happens more than we know. I've, I, I've read a psychologist that uh, really was a little troubled that he didn't go to Vietnam, but he feels he stayed home and he got to help the people coming back. But no, it's, it's just an, uh, just a part of the, uh, the combat experience. But as I said, I think in this case, it's because of this strong trauma, because it, this all happened while uh, Stanley was growing up as a young man, as a young boy, hearing these stories. And I think he lost, may have lost some of his relatives okay. uh, to the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I think maybe having um, the fact that he was Jewish and the fact that he had some kind of indirect connection to it probably hit home a little bit more because it, it didn't make oh. the, the death as abstract as for some other Americans. Oh, oh, of course, of course. So anyway, begin the study of compliance, you know, obedience it's more uh, thought of. And he was in uh, Yale University in, back in New Haven, Connecticut. So they tried to design these uh, experiments. And, you know, you just can't come out directly and say, well, we're doing an experiment about the Holocaust and we need somebody to direct the people into the showers. Would you like to volunteer for that? And, you know, people would say, wow, what are you talking about? And uh, so they had to be deceptive. And there were some of the people would be Confederates. There might be other grad students or uh, students, but we're in on the experiment. Uh, one of the first one was very harmless, but it started to indicate what was going on here. They, it was a classroom situation, and the subject uh, would be the last one brought in the room and say, well, you know, everybody's already here, but uh, you arrived late, but just take that seat in the back of the classroom. And there'd be an, you know, pseudo instructor at the, you know, on the bulletin board or the board in the front. There'd be this bar graph. And there'd be three bars, and three would be uh, a certain length, and the fourth one would be shorter. So the inst- pseudo instructor said, "Well, we're going to ask questions about this bar graph today, and um, when we get to the bar that's the shortest, raise your hand." Okay, does everybody understand? You know, okay, yeah, yeah. So is it bar number one, and everybody sits there? Is it bar number two? No, they sit there. Is it bar number three? Everybody raises their hand, and the subject. He raises his hand too. It's obviously wrong, but what is he thinking? Maybe I didn't understand the question. Maybe these other people know something I don't, and maybe I better just go along to get along. I, I and- love, I love this idea of of doubt filling one's mind because we we can believe something to be a hundred percent certain in the comf- in the comforts of our solitude, uh, like two plus two is four. And then once we're introduced to other people, we start doubting things that we, we absolutely hold to be true and to be valuable. And I think, I, I think that doubt also is mixed with perhaps fear of reprisal. Like, oh my God, if I don't go along with everyone else, they're going to think I'm dumb and they're not going to like me. And, and I might be ostracized. If, for example, a German soldier is is paid to obey orders right. he's not 
not supposed to ask, you know, hey, Sarge, I don't know about this. And the other thing I would say, you get into a habit. You know, maybe the first time you're asked to do this, you may say, well, I don't know. But you do it day after day after day, and it becomes routine, and, you, and no one else questions, so you don't question. I like that. So conformity through routine. Going back to the first Milgram uh, experiment with the bar, were there any people that did go against the group and stick to their guns and say, no, that, that bar is definitely the shorter one? No, I, I, I apologize there, and I don't know the re- exact <laughs> results, but the fact that anybody would, it's just amazing. Yeah. It's, to me, it's like peer pressure, you know, in middle school or junior high, we called it, you know, somebody gets a tattoo, well, then everybody's got to get a tattoo. It's just amazing uh, social pressure. You know, it's, it's sometimes like um, as a teacher, I've been in the classroom and a kid will raise their hand and they actually have the right answer. But it's one of those questions where the right answer sounds kind of wrong. And they'll, they'll raise their hand and say the right answer. And then the entire class will laugh at them. And then they'll actually like retract their hand and, and sort of like, <laughs> like their shoulders. And I'll be like, no, actually she was correct. That is the answer. And then the whole class will be like, oh, in like complete awe. But it's just amazing that when people laugh at us or, or like give any pushback, we suddenly retract whatever it is that we're thinking. That maybe you, you shouldn't be the smarty pants anyway. You're, you're showing up the rest of us. Yeah. Thinking about all of these things, when it comes to like routine, for example, like you were describing earlier, that because everyone else is doing it and everyone's doing it consistently, let me not be like the squeaky wheel. Like we, we kind of <laughs> chastise people who are squeaky because squeaky to us is a sign of inefficiency. It's a sign that the car is about to break down. When in actuality, being squeaky means that you're drawing attention to, hey, this wheel's about to fall off the car. You better start, <laughs> you better change it, right? But, but, but our, our reaction is like, no, that's, that's squeaky. That's unpleasant. Let me ignore it. Just be like the other tires. But really that tire is screaming out at you that it needs to be changed. Yeah, like, yeah that's, that status quo is uh, so powerful. Well, should we go on to the next experiment? Yes, let's because, do it. Because <laughs> Stanley said, oh, this is all interesting. But we're talking about killing people here. So he set up this uh, memory test, uh, memory experiment. And it, the funny thing is, it's, it's so 1950s technology, but it has this big <laughs> bank, bank of switches and this, in this marked with voltages, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever, up to 300 volts. And it's this, this long panel. And so there's a chair there, and there's another chair kind of around the corner. So the supposed thing is this is a memory test. And uh, so we have we asked for volunteers, and this is another thing. We've got this confederate. But so there's the researcher is, you know, one of the guys in on the experiment, and he's got the lab coat on, uh, looks very official, probably, probably got his clipboard. He's the authority figure. So the volunteer comes in, and it's very important. The volunteer comes, the subject, he comes in first, because if the Confederate was in there first, you might kind of think, oh, maybe these two has, there's some collusion going on here. So the subject comes in first, and then the Confederate, and the Confederate just happens to say, 
you know, I, I've, I've got a heart condition. I hope this doesn't, you know, affect me or whatever. Just kind of throw that out there. But so anyway, the researcher starts to explain this experiment that we're, we're trying to uh, test memory. And to reinforce it, we're going to be administering electric shocks. You know, that you know, just sounds you know, kind of harmless. And so then we've got a couple wires hanging out here. And here, hold on these wires. And, and uh, the other guy at Confederate, go over and push the five-volt uh, switch <laughs> over there. You know, it's funny you say electric shocks. I, I can seldom think of a time where an electric shock was a positive thing. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't that what your mommy did to you? you? <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, nothing like, uh, you know, when you when you come out of the womb, some electric shocks is what, exactly what a baby needs, right? <laughs> I, I think I'll go back in the womb for a while. <laughs> but, but to reinforce that this is really happening, they, you know, they both, the subject and the Confederate, you know, feel that, feel that little five volts or whatever. Yeah, that tingling. You know, it's, this is real. This is not a make-believe thing. This is really happening. So anyway, so then the, the Confederate or the, uh, the uh, subject of the experiment, he runs around the corner. And so then the, uh, the uh, victim, a volunteer, uh, sits below in the, at this console. And the researcher, you know, let's get to work here. And so it starts, you know, putting this, and I forgot the details exactly how the memory test worked, but that's unimportant. And the Confederate, he's got a script. And so he knows exactly when he's supposed to give the right answer and, and the wrong answer. And so he, you know, they go a couple of right answers, then there's a wrong answer. And the reinsurger says, okay, administer the 10 volt uh, reinforcement. And so they push the key and the guy goes, oh, and so, so it's, reinforcement it actually happened so they're working their way up and more errors and okay 20 volts 30 volts and the the subject or the confederates going ow ow you're getting louder and uh, we're getting up to 100 volts and he's screaming and uh at this point the uh the volunteers starting asking is, is everything okay is this and the researcher it to me it, it's a lab coat but it's also the tone of voice it's only ever says one thing the experiment must continue. Yes. And also saying, I'm, I take complete responsibility. Everything's okay. And so we're going on. You administer the next shock. And, and just to clarify, these, the person uh, that's receiving the shocks is on the other side of a wall. So you can't really, you can't, the, the, the person can't see that they are, in fact, not getting shocked in any way. Yeah. Right. It's so he just, they can be heard, but they can't be seen. And I'm not sure about the detail. I think maybe there was a buzzer when the, the uh, volunteer would push the key. So then the, the Confederate knows when to make, make his response. You know, that'd be, a, or it'd be a little light or something like that. So yeah. the uh, Confederate knows when to, to make his response. Then above these switches, like between 100 and 200 volts, it says caution. And then between 200 and 300 volts, it says danger. So we're, we're going, as I said, the, the Confederates making more and more racket. He's yelling, hey, get me, get the heck out of here. I've got a heart condition. And, and the volunteer is saying, no, is, you know, is, 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 should we continue? And the, research, uh, the experiment must continue. And the amazing thing was they would keep going. And then it, between like 250 and 300 volts, when they would push the key for the shock, it would be silence. 
and that that Which like signifies the person has just passed away or is probably it, in need of medical attention right away. It could very well be, and yeah, the volunteer maybe saying, "Do we need to check on this guy or whatever?" And you know, the experiment must continue. And the amazing thing was, when I heard this described back, in, I said twenty-five years ago, that thirty percent of the people would administer all the shocks and just comply, wow. just just obey orders. And Wikipedia said 65%. So I don't know which figure is correct. But this is another thing about, you know, the fact anyone would, it's just amazing. So it's like <laughs> we learned from Milgram that seven in 10 people could very well execute an innocent person under, under just following orders. And I, I think that that in, in the American consciousness actually allowed us to look at Nazis in, in quite a, a different lens in some way, because if, if we as Americans were, are willing to kill somebody, uh, or at least seven out of 10 people were willing to like push the lever all the way down to the final voltage, which uh, definitely implied death. And I think, I think even, I think the sound would even like the person screaming would stop after like the third to last voltage. And that's just like, you're killing them. You're, you're basically shocking a dead person at that point. And it, it's just this like reminder that when we have figures of authority and, and we have built in routines, like we're able to kind of engage in things that we never thought possible. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing. But the, today you look around and we put children in cages and just the last few days, they're talking about women being involuntarily sterilized. I think, you know, to prevent immigrants having anchor babies and then have a reason that they have to stay here. I just, some things, you know, I don't, I don't hate my country, but I hate some things my country does. And we have to be alert to these things, but you're right. It's so easy just to say, well, I'm just obeying orders and I'm doing what I'm supposed to. And Colonel Clink ordered me to, so we're just going to go along. So let's focus on, so there is some positivity because what I like about the Milgram study, and I think also the one with the, um, the different lines, is that there's still 30% of people that can resist this. And I, I come of the belief system that if somebody else can do it, then we can all do it. And I, I think that's, a, that's one of my guiding beliefs is that if someone can run that marathon, then most of us could work our way to doing it. And I want to think about, I want to kind of brainstorm this with you a little, Dave. I'm wondering what kind of personality types does it take to resist authority? Like, I'm, I'm wondering, like, what kind, what individuals do we have in our own life, in the media, that, that, that allow us to push back? And I, I think, I, I think there's a lot of qualities. And I think one of those qualities is bravery. And I, I think that that's something that we tend to see bravery as being like a reckless characteristic. We see bravery as being something that only a foolish youth kind of subscribes to. But I think as a society, we need to get a lot braver with standing up to authority and standing up to things that aren't exactly working anymore. Does that sound right to you, Dave? Well, I'd look at it a little differently. Of course, I always do, Aaron. But I would say innocence. And to mm -hmm. me, I go back to the story of the emperor with no clothes. And it's the little boy looking at the parade, pointing, you know, and telling his daddy, Daddy, 
why doesn't the emperor have any clothes on? <laughs> but because we're, all of us are brainwashed that, oh, the emperor, he has the finest suit of clothes in the empire, and his flowing red robe is so beautiful with you know, tiger skins and all this other stuff and the crown. And But one person, the little boy, can see the truth. And to me, I forget who this quote's uh, given by, but one person cannot change the world, but they're the only one that can. Yes. So I, sometimes, yeah, we have to stand up and say, no, this is wrong, and I'm going to take a stand even though everybody else says yes. I want to, I, I love what, I love that quote. And I want to, I want to go back to, to the innocence thing. Yes. I, I 100% agree with you, Dave, that innocence and sticking to your guts is, is the thing. Cause I think children are perfect examples of resisting social conditioning. I think if you ever talk to a four five, six year old, they are anti-social conditioning in a really unique and really beautiful way. What I also think though is that if you have that innocence, like maybe there were people in the Milgram experiment who stuck to their guts and knew what they were doing was wrong, but they also had fear. I, I think that it's a combination of, because you could be very innocent and know what you're doing is wrong internally. Now, there were some people who thought the guy in the white lab coat was doing the right thing and, and just totally drank the Kool-Aid and bought into it. But there was probably other people who knew what they were doing were wrong, but they felt, oh my God, uh, I might get arrested or this guy's going to report me to the police or some other negative consequence will befall on me. And that's kind of where I say you need to have bravery as well. Yeah, you're right. To, to uh, back uh, when you're going uh, upstream, yeah, sometimes it's it's more difficult to uh, to buck the system for sure. So a few closing comments because he was you know finished and he's got his results or whatever. Then they started saying, well, these were all, you know, they, these were all male students from Yale that uh, volunteered or whatever. And so maybe men are more susceptible to doing this. So. Let's, let's get some female students and see, and sure. my gosh, the results were just about the same. <laughs> and so, you know, so these are college students, so these are spoiled rich kids. Well, let's take this experiment into town and, and let's get some, you know, some blue collar workers, you know, some average Joes, and uh, we'll run again. And again, similar results. So yeah, it was amazing, no matter what population. So they ran and reran this experiment several times so to uh, make sure it was valid. You know, it's funny you mentioned the, the woman thing because I was actually uh, discussing in a meetup with, with a woman who believed that because women have like lower levels of testosterone and she said that women have like the uh, protective instinct, like they have the, 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 the maternal protective instinct to protect their children, they are not as capable of committing atrocities or genocides and all this, because she said as a mother, you have that maternal instinct to, to preserve life and to preserve your children. And therefore committing atrocities or committing genocide is just outside the scope of any woman. And I, I think that this Milgram study actually completely refutes that. Yeah, it's amazing. To move on a little bit, he, he published his results in 1963. And, and the amazing thing is, of course, I have a, a weird memory, but I, I swear I can remember where I was when I heard the news broad, broadcast on the radio. And I was in my college campus, so I swear it was, I started college in 65, but 
maybe I was there with my dad for a basketball game or something. But of course, it's like the media most of the time. It got partially right, partially wrong, or whatever. But you can imagine the news broadcast from the Yale campus. Students are simulating electrocutions or wow. things like that. <laughs> and you can imagine, I mean, you know, because he spoke back east. But it, so when uh, Stanley Milgram's biography was written, the, the title was The Man Who Shocked the World. I love that. Because, <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's so descriptive, of course, on both ways that the, the shock experiments, but the results were so shocking that people could not believe it. So, uh, of course, then people would ask, well, was this even ethical? Should he have done it? Uh, should they have had releases? Should they have told people more about the experiments? Uh, and, of course, I've even heard people lately say, well, it, it wasn't replicated. And I saw some pictures that they tried to do it again. But the thing is, they had the same 50s technology, this big old bank. Of yeah, and yeah. It, it was so weird. People say, well, what in the heck's going on here? Milgram is so powerful that he brought this to light that this can happen, that, you know, I'm, I'm just a link in the chain. And the thing about replicating things like this is like once a study like that goes published, well, the cat is kind of out of the bag because there might be some people that don't know that that has happened, but then people are going to walk into this experiment and like if you try and do it 20 years later, but wait a minute, I read about an experiment like this in the paper <laughs> 20 years ago. Like, I, I think I know what you're doing. So you know, there's, there's probably other ways that we could do it. There's probably a new spin or a new angle we could do on it. But I, I think he did it enough times. I think that, it, you know, we, we have this idea in science that, oh, well, you have to replicate it. But I think that because he actually did the hard work of doing Yale students and then doing the working class and then doing all sorts of different demographics, I think he did do the hard work of proving that this holds up in a variety of different populations. And to close this up, I would say the, the most interesting thing is it made it to Hollywood. Uh, of course, this was 1980, uh, 1984, the, the movie Ghostbusters that, you know, you millennials may not even heard it. Or, oh, I know. Or Bill Murray, I, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> but one of the opening scenes was the Bill Murray character was a researcher in a memory experience experiment. And I think they had flashcards or something. So it's a little differently, but he was administering shocks. And it was just a small part of the movie. And to me, it was kind of an inside joke that people that knew about the experiment would, would recognize what was going on, but it wasn't a big part of the plot. But yeah, it just shows how big an, an impact uh, this experiment had on society. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think that it, it, and there's been a lot of documentaries and a, a lot of um, films like highlighting uh, the contribution that he made. And I, I think, you know, as a result of the Milgram study, and, and I think the next study we're going to talk about as well, there is this, like, there is like an ethical board now that like, if you're a psychologist and you want to do something like this, it has to it go through an ethical board that evaluates, okay, is this going to reveal people's privacy or is this going to damage people in the long term? And that's important. Like we, we don't want to create data and we don't want to create experiments that leave people that are already vulnerable, more vulnerable. But at the same time, I think that when we have all of these barriers, it prevents us from kind of discovering some ugly truths about humanity that, that might benefit us. Yeah, and as I was saying before, I mean, you you have to, you almost have to do it with deception, 
because if you do it straightforward, it, they re, it really would skew the results. So if we're ready to move on. Yeah, let's an, do it. Another, the, this, the, these are the two most, to me, the most critical psychology experiments of the 20th century. And the second was a man named Philip Zimbardo. And as I was saying, it was really a, a amazing thing. He was also born in 1933 and, and went to the same high school. It's not clear if they knew each other, but his situation was a little different where uh, Stanley Milgram was Jewish. This guy was from Italy, but kind of this, the uh, South Europe and South European appearance, kind of you know, a little darker skin, dark hair. And he said he was often mistaken for being Jewish or maybe being uh, Hispanic. And he started thinking about, well, people can't even put me in a, a category, but these categories are such a big deal. It started him down the track to, to, to study sociology. How does society fit together and how come we're in these tribes and you know, we, we resent each other and this, that, and the other. So he ended up out in Stanford and his uh, experiments were about 10 years later. That's why I didn't think they were related at all. But they were. Um, the, he got a grant from the U.S. Navy to study uh, the interactions in their prisons. And, of course, you know, I was in the Navy for a while. And, you know, you're out at sea uh, and something goes wrong. You, you have a prison on board ship, which might just be one of the compartments or whatever. So they have used unusual situations, but a lot of abuse between the guards and the prisoners. And so the government said, well, study why this goes on. Uh, Philip Zimbardo designed this experiment and we're going to get uh, 24 students together and, you know, 12 uh, prisoners and 12 guards. And they pretty much selected randomly. They didn't look at personalities or anything else. But, uh, and they, I think they were down in the basement of the psychology building. And they just, I think it was some old uh, in instructor's offices or whatever were converted into jail cells. No bars, but just doors. And they, the, the funny thing is, they actually had some uh, sheriff officers go out and arrest the uh, prisoners at their houses and bring them in to make this as realistic as possible. And to me, I thought it, it was a big deal about studying the effect on the prisoners. So then we've got to have guards. So we have three shifts of eight. And so they got some khaki uniforms from uh, government surplus. And then the, the touch of these mirrored sunglasses, that, uh, you know, so you can't see your eyes. And there were also, also a wooden baton to you know, reinforce the authority figure. Specific instructions, you know, you can't hit the prisoners. And it was going to be for two weeks. And so we're, we're starting off and everybody goes down in their positions. And the first day goes pretty well. And of course, the guards, they want to exercise their authority. And really not much they can do, but they, you know, can have inspections and, you know, okay, you guys line up and we'll call names. And, oh, and the other thing is we're going to address them only by numbers to mm. depersonalize them as much as possible. And then we realize, oh, we can start taking things away. So pretty soon, you know, we take away the prisoner's clothes. We take away the bed clothes. We take away the mattresses. Pretty soon we take away the cots. So right. after a couple of days, I mean, this has just gone amazing. And so you, you end up with, you know, a, a five or ten, you know, ten naked guys. Well, what do you got to do? Well, you got to make a pyramid of naked guys. 
And so we're getting, and of course, all this was being videotaped. And Philip Zimbardo had a girlfriend. So I, I say this in the tale of two girlfriends. So <laughs> he called his girlfriend, well, come o'clock, you know, this is Wednesday night, come over here about 10 o'clock and see what's, see what's going on here. He knew he, she'd be amazed. So she was looking what's going on. These videos, these, you know, pyramids of naked guys and everything else, these guys shooting around naked. And so she, she starts yelling, what in the hell are you doing? <laughs> and Zimbar said, well, hey, no, this is an experiment. I mean, it's all defined and it's under control. I'm taking care of everything. He says, you're crazy. And she storms out and says, sure. if you're, if this, is this the man you are? I'm breaking up with you. I have nothing to do with you. So <laughs> and he's he like, no, I'm sorry, sweetheart. I'm trying to benefit humanity here. Like, <laughs> Yeah, well, no more Saturday night. So he, he follows her out to the parking lot and he tries to reason with her. And, you know, like I said, this is science and I'm a scientist and, you know, you're a scientist too. You ought to understand this. So he goes back inside and said, you know, uh, maybe I better end the experiment. So uh, the next day, Thursday, they, they broke it down. So the, the two week experiment lasted four days. Wow. But it, and it, so it wasn't the prisoners, it was the guards. The guards just went off the rail. And like I said, no one was physically hurt. But, uh, oh, the other thing I didn't mention, I think it was the second day, uh, one of the prisoners, he just lost it. He said, you know, get me out of here. And I'm, you know, I'm going crazy. So they sent him home. But there was a, a hunger strike. And one of the prisoners tried to organize the prisoners uh, into defying and starting the revolution. There was a janitor's closet. Uh, was used for solitary confinement. Jeez. So there was supposed to be a limit that you know you could put somebody in there for not more, but not more for two two hours. But I think it was four hours or overnight. I mean, they just broke all the rules and just treated the prisoners like poop. So um, now, so anyway, uh, just to clarify, so the guards are just college students. They they don't have any formal. Uh, auxiliary kind of training and dealing with a situation like this. They, they kind of had like a quick crash course on like, okay, we're going to put these uniforms on you and you're now going to become a guard. And I, I think even just putting that uniform on somebody changes them in some, in some way. Yes. Yeah. In fact, that's, you know, from the word uniform. Yeah. We, have, we start uniformly and you, you enter a role. And I think that's part of the explanation that if you're in this role, then you have permission to act this way and you're expected to act this way. So, and that was a big part of the experiment in, in uh, the deductions, the results. And I think, I think it's interesting because when we think of like the rise of Nazism, for example, we think of it as being this like long drawn out 10 year indoctrination process. Like we think that, oh, you can only become evil if, you know, we have a fascist dictator for 10 years and you are watching hours and hours and hours of propaganda. But I think Zimbardo is basically proving, no, I can just put a random uniform on some guy and within two days he'll be committing atrocities, which is, that's even more startling because it, it shows how quick that transformation could happen. Yeah. yeah. And as we were saying in uh, Milgram, to, to almost anybody, yeah. And of course, there was one guard that was more abusive than the others. Sure. And most of this bad stuff took place, you know, during the night shift. You know, first it started by, oh, we'll have these uh, 
inspections at two in the morning, you know, to, to prevent the, the people from sleeping and have a good night's rest. But yeah, it was just amazing how it broke down. I think, I think also the, the sunglasses, like not being able to look into somebody's eyes, probably, you know, they say that the eyes are like the window to the soul. So I, I, I yes. think, I think when you, when you close off someone's eyes, you stop seeing their humanity. And I know that the prisoners didn't have sunglasses on, but I, th I think that <laughs> them not being able to like fully look at one another, I, I think that also kind of adds to this, this effect of, of, of dehumanization that, that we can't, we can't look eye to eye with, with one, one person because when someone's lying to you, for example, if it's really hard for people to lie to you and make consistent eye contact, that's a very, you have to be straight up sociopath to be able to pull that one off. Most people, when you're just constantly looking them in the eyes, their mouth starts giving, they start smiling, they start giggling. They, they can't, they can't pull, they can't hold it down. It's hard. Yeah. It, that, that look with the mirrored sunglasses, I would call it menacing. Sure. And you often see it in movies that, uh, yeah, the character like that is just superior and you're inferior and, you know, I have complete control of you. Now, I'm wondering with the Zimbardo study, like he obviously had to shut down the circus after four days. I'm wondering if, if he probably gave them permission to actually hit prisoners. I'm 90% confident that some of those guards would have started hitting the prisoners and taking it to the next level if they were given permission. Or maybe if the experiment had been allowed to go the full two weeks, they probably would have just naturally gone to that level on their own. Yeah, um, I read an excellent book about Guantanamo Bay. I mean, you start giving commands about, okay, hold your arms out straight for an hour. Sure. Well, you find out pretty quick, like five or 10 minutes, it's impossible. And so, you know, your arms drop and so the guard hits you. And it's just an excuse to hit people. And, but you're right, it, it's very tempting to, to abuse your authority. And because so many times the prisoner is the other, it's in the other person in society or the, uh, in war, the uh, people that are less than human we're fighting. And you're mad enough for being over there when you don't want to be over there. So you take it out on the prisoner. So it's, it's very sad. I think that's that's very true. Um, there's this idea, like, and I, I want to touch upon what you're saying about the soldier not wanting to be there, because sometimes the most, like, we can have a lot of petty tyrants in our society. Like, you give somebody just a little lick of power, and especially, especially if it's a person that's not used to having power or has never had power before, you give them a lick of power and they sort of run wild. You know, you think of that person that works at the DMV who, you know, like they don't have yeah. all that much power, but in that moment, they can be like, no, to the back of the line, you didn't bring a form I-9321. And, and they, and they kind of get like a little thrill out of that. Or, or let's say that security guard with a college campus, for example, they've seen that person, that student entering the campus like a thousand times, but this is the one day they forgot their ID but this is the day that they want to flex their authority muscle and be like, no, I'm sorry, I, I can't let you in. And I think that authoritarianism preys on those types of people, the people that have no power and then giving them a uniform and just a little sparkle of power, and then they start running wild with it. Yeah, that just makes their day because in the, in the rest of the world, they probably wouldn't be in charge of you, but in their little cubicle, it's it's their world and they 
they're going to exercise their power by gosh. Exactly. And I, I, you know, I, I want to speak about the one dude, uh, the one guy, the one guard who went too far, right? Because you said that some guards were pretty nasty, but then there was one guy who was exceptionally nasty. I think that also comes from a place of personal abuse. Like maybe that guard that went way too far, maybe he was really uh, abused in, in, in some previous instance in his life. And now he has this, you know, security guard authority. And now, now is his time to sparkle. This is his time to shine. So I, I think that a, a, a people that are abused from the beginning are, you're actually training them. Like people who have a, a history of being abused actually make the perfect candidates for these kinds of roles. Yeah, that's the thing is we, we think we have an ideal society, but we've really got a place where uh, people have different parenting styles. And, you know, my, my dad whipped me when I was a little boy. So by gosh, I'm going to spank my kid if they act up. And others say, oh, no, you don't touch your child. But yeah, that's, there's some people that, in fact, that's one of uh, Jordan Peterson's stories about this man who was a serial killer. He said, read his book about how he's brought up and you'll understand. Yeah. yeah, It's a sad commentary. Thinking about the child that gets hit, I think it's extremely difficult to to be a child that gets hit and then grow up to be the parent that does not hit. Because that that requires a fundamental shift. Because I meet so many people in my life, Dave, and, and I hear this. When I was younger, I had to do blah blah blah, and I, I hear I hear this a, I hear this a lot of like, well, you know, when I was your age or when I was in your shoes, I didn't have anybody, and I'm like, well, with all due respect, don't you want to see the world get a little bit better? Don't don't you want to see some of these things improve? Yeah. And I I just don't get it. It's almost as if like because I had to suffer this injustice when I was younger, I want all future younger people to suffer this injustice. Yeah, and to to criticize your parents is almost to say they were wrong and you're a bad person. So yeah, people, it's awful hard for people to admit that it, it needs to be changed. But uh, yeah, we do have to improve this world a little bit at a time. But to to finish the story, yeah, uh, this this was such a radical thing and such a terrible thing had happened. Philip Zimbardo, you know, it's naturally you know, okay, this is the thing you write a book about. And, but he was, it was so close to him. I mean, it was his thing. So he was not able to, to write a book about it. Although, you know, everything was recorded, everything's right there. So, you know, so this was uh, 74 or so. 30 years later, we have Abu Ghraib in, in Iraq and uh, abuse of prisoners. And I, the second girlfriend, uh, because Muslims are taught that, you know, you know, you're never going to be a naked man and sit, you know, unless in front of your wife or your mother. Sure. But so this, this army sergeant said, well, hey, let me call my girlfriend. And we'll have her bring over here and we'll get all these prisoners naked. And she'll walk up and down and oogle them and make comments about, you know, this, that, and the other. Just to, uh, just to uh, make them feel terrible, embarrass them. So, so some pictures were taken and they made it back to the States. And of course, then they're picked up by the media. And so there's these pictures of pyramids of naked bodies, uh, these naked prisoners. And so there was somebody in a TV studio somewhere that taken Psychology 101. He said, oh my gosh, this is Stanford Prison Experiment. 
because you can take the pictures and they're just interchangeable. So they called Zimbardo and I, I swear that the pictures came up in the morning and Zimbardo was interviewed that afternoon. Wow. It, just, it was, a, it was just so logical. Yeah. And, uh, I, I forget his comments, but it was just amazing that they, they knew right away who to talk to. You know, I remember uh, Abu Ghraib pretty vividly. And I, re I remember that one picture of this uh, naked prisoner who's wearing that uh, black sheet over their head. And there's a, a dog mm -hmm. right next to them. And the thing that also stands out to me is this is one photo of a very young girl. Like she's probably, I forgot her name, but she was, you know, maybe 19, 20 years old. And she's standing there smiling next to these prisoners that are forming like a, a male pyramid. And I think that like these people are, the, the, the soldiers and the guards that were put in charge of Abu Ghraib, they're so young. And they are, they fit that mold of being young, never had any form of power or responsibility in their life prior to this. And they, they make like the perfect, the, the perfect candidates to do these kind of things because they, they've never been entrusted with this before. And this is kind of their moment to like be powerful. Yeah. They were only uh, trained as military police. They weren't trained to be jailers or prison guards. And, um, uh, so after this happened, Zimbardo was asked to come on the defense team of one of these army sergeants. And so he was entirely sympathetic. And, and of course, the other thing is there was a bombardment going on from time to time. So they'd never know when a mortar shell would come in. And yeah. uh, these, these sergeants, you know, they had to sleep in the prison cells. So it was a very strange situation. But so he finally wrote his book called the Lucifer effect, you know, Lucifer, the devil. Yeah. But uh, so the first half is the complete reenactment of the Stanford prison experiment. And the second half is about the terrible things going on in Iraq. And so it's quite the book. It's quite the story. It's just amazing. Lucifer, yeah, I got to check out that book, the, the Lucifer effect. Um, that the one, the one thing that we need to take out of Milgram and, and Zimbardo is that, we think of Lucifer or we think of Satan or, or just evil, like even, even for the atheists or, or people who are not coming from a religious background, we think of evil as something that's external to us. Like, oh, there's yeah. the evil guy. There's the evil guy poisoning our minds. But what we fail to realize is that this evil exists within all of us, no matter how saintly or how wonderful we are, it's there. And it just takes the right dial and it just takes the right push for us to, to, for that to come out of each and every one of us. And that's, that's very scary, but at the same time, it's immensely liberating. It's liberating to know, well, if evil comes from within us, we have power over it, right? Like, I think that's actually kind of liberating because if evil is just an external force that we can't control, well, that's kind of depressing. But if it comes from within us, it's therefore something that we can change. Yeah, and I think it ties into what Carl Jung called the shadow. But you're right, the good and evil is inside of us. And so it's, it's our personal decisions. Uh, people talk about the angels on you know, one shoulder and the devils on the other shoulder. But yeah, that, that's one of our big revelations that uh, it's, it's internal to us and it's uh, decisions we make on our own. 
and of course, I have to go back to Hollywood again. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't actually Hollywood this time, but it was actually a German, uh, which is a little ironic, but a German film on the Stanford Prison Experiment came out, I think maybe in the 1980s. So it, it also hit Hollywood. But like I said, these, these two experiments, uh, Zimbardo and Milgram, are just so powerful. Just, I'm glad I had a chance to talk to you about them today. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show again, Dave. My pleasure. It's, to me, it's, these are important lessons, and I hope the people listening to these uh, get a lot out of them. Well, thank you, Dave. This concludes the 16th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.